0: Praise the Lord. Amen. The Lord is good. Can we uh, give him another hand clap off? I know you were waiting for me to say that because I just like to say it. If you have your Bible, meet me in the gospel according to John chapter six. We're taking a pause in our series in Colossians to preach on other topics relative to our congregation. And as we turn here, can we all stand for the reading of God's word? I'll be reading from John chapter 6, verse 60 through 70. The ESV translation. When many of his disciples heard it, that is Jesus' disciples, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, Said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if he were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is a spirit who gives life, the flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who it was who did not believe, and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did not not chose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he knew, for he was one of the 12, was going to betray him. You may be seated. I wanna preach on the topic when Jesus separates his fans from his followers. Holy Spirit, we thank you for being a comforter. We pray but now that you'll bring glory to the Father and to the Son, Jesus Christ, as he is exalted. May our eyes be fixated on him. May the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Our Lord, our strength and our Redeemer, and the people of God say Amen. I will never forget that night. It was February 4th, 2018, you might recall. The Eagles won the Super Bowl. I shouted up and down, rejoice. Come on, how many, I hope we don't have no haters in here, right? Okay. I, it was pure excitement rejoicing with my relatives. I couldn't, I could suddenly just see the top, the, the top dogs being destroyed by the underdogs, 41 to 33. I remember driving for Uber that day. Lots of people were out and about going nuts. The city was lit up in green. Electronic billboards on expressways, tall buildings downtown, all in green. Everyone everywhere was chanting go birds. They were loud and passionate. The streets we're packed downtown with crowds wearing Eagles jerseys and green t-shirts. You really couldn't tell the difference between those who were fans and those who weren't. But what about after the Super Bowl, when the Eagles hit a losing season again? How many Eagles fans jumped off the fan wagon and onto another team? Cal Eidemann in his book, Not a Fan, tells us that a fan, especially one who is enthusiastic, is the guy who goes to the football game with no shirt on and a painted chest. He sits in the stands and cheers for his team. He has a signed jersey hanging on his wall back at home and multiple bumper stickers on the back of his car, but he's never in the game. He never breaks a sweat or takes a hard hit in the open field. He knows all about the players and can rattle off the latest stats, but he doesn't know the players. He yells and cheers, but nothing is required of him. There's no sacrifice he has to make. (laughs) And the truth is, as exciting as he seems... If his teams he's cheering for right now starts to hit a losing season again, with a few off season, his passion begins to wane very quickly, and after several losing seasons, we can expect him to jump off the fan wagon and onto another team. He is what Cal Eidemann identifies as an enthusiastic admirer. Just like this man, Jesus had a lot of enthusiastic admirers. These were raving fans. In fact, John opens this chapter by giving us the insider's edition of Jesus' fans. If you read in chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. A striking feature in John's gospel are the signs that Jesus performed throughout his earthly ministry, and yet the crowd missed every single sign that was pointing to him as the Messiah. And ironically, they demanded more signs. But Jesus graciously kept putting up one sign after another, but his fans didn't get it, but his followers did. You see, these people traveled across seas just To see this miracle worker perform, it was pure entertainment. They were fascinated with the miracles he performed on the sick. They were fixated on the miracles, but they missed the person who was performing the miracles. They worked up a sweat traveling. They heard about him turning water into wine in chapter 2, driving money changers out of the temple. They witnessed hundreds of Samaritans coming to Jesus as a result of his encounter with that woman at the well. They had front row seats to Jesus, dramatically healing that man who was paralyzed for 38 years of his life. And despite their admiration with Jesus, they kept missing the sign that was pointing to himself. And as Jesus' popularity grew, so did his fan base. But Jesus wasn't looking for fans. Don't get me wrong, it's not that he didn't care for the crowd. He cared deeply for the crowd. So much so that after a full day of teaching, the Bible says we find Jesus by the Sea of Galilee during the Passover feast, knowing that the multitude was hungry, he performed yet another jaw-dropping miracle. He took a little boy's lunch bag, full of two fish and five loaves of bread and multiplies it, feeding over 20,000 people when you include women and children wow it was a spectacular event in fact it was a fantastic occasion one in which these people would never forget ambition begins to sink in and after dinner the crowd decides to camp out the night that night so they can see Jesus the next day They were already worked up into a frenzy about this miracle worker, but now, after the buffet dinner, they came to a sudden discovery that he was a prophet who was to come into the world, showing how little that they knew about him. In fact, they knew knew so little about Jesus that John tells us in verse 14 that when they saw the sign Jesus did, they called him the prophet, not realizing that he was more than a prophet. And in verse 15, they wanted to make this prophet or take him by force and make him king, not realizing he was already king. No doubt these fans had the stats on Jesus. Like groupies, they they traveled far and wide to hear his teachings. They saw his miracles and even camped out to be where Jesus was, just to be where Jesus was. Yet, they wanted to take him and make him king, not realizing that he was already king of kings and lord of lords. You see, they had plans for Jesus. They, they, Perhaps he can overthrow the Roman government, set up his kingdom on earth. Even maybe build a Megan golden corral, all-you-can-eat buffet. But Jesus wasn't having it. And in response, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself to pray. And after camping out that night, the crowd woke to discover that Jesus and his boys had already rolled out. Literally rolled out because they got in the boat and rolled out. Okay, thank you for laughing. And it didn't take long for these enthusiastic admirers to make some observations about Jesus' travel arrangements as we see in verses 22 to 24. Look at this. It says, on the next day, the crowds that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. And the other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd had saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So what does the crowd do? They get into the boat as dedicated fans would, and they're searching desperately for Jesus. The pursuit was on. And finally, in verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? We've been searching all over for you. Restless and mystified by his disappearance, they were were now excited to see him again. But Jesus was not impressed by their pursuit. He sees right into their hearts and calls out their motives. Verse 26, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You see, these fans did not want Jesus. They wanted what Jesus can do for them. They missed the sign and only saw the loaves of bread and fish. Then Jesus becomes emphatic in the next verse. Do not work for food, verse 27, that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? See, they were asking him, what kind of regulations or requirements must we do to keep this bread coming? They wanted a self-salvation project. See, a self-salvation project is when people feel that they need to do something to get on God's good side. A self-salvation project it's when you start to seek to become your own redeemer through your own good works. Listen, if you put your hope in your own self-salvation project, it will crush you. Jesus told the crowd in Luke chapter 9, verse 24, whoever wishes to save his life in this world will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. You see, it's impossible for us to live up to God's standard and our own strength. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not about what you do or I do. It's about what Christ has already done at Calvary and will do as this narrative unfolds. And I'm learning that when we, be, when we come to the end of ourselves, when we come to the end of our own achievements and our own performance and our own self-righteousness, We come to the beginning of Christ. But Jesus says there is something you can do. But it's not what you think. Are you ready? Verse 29, he answered them, this is the work of God that you believe. Believe in him whom he has sent. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, or the gift of God, and not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is a free gift that must be appropriated by faith in Christ alone. See, what this crowd failed to realize is that Jesus, the Messiah, plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And as the fans had typically responded here, okay, we can't perform to get on God's good side. What kind of miracle will you perform for us, Jesus, so that we will believe in you? They asked this question as if they were clueless about what Jesus just done a day ago, feeding over 20,000 people. What? What sign will you do that we may see and believe? What work will you perform? Didn't realize this, but it was not due. It's done. Christ will be dying on that cross as this narrative unfolds. And when he died on that cross, he said, it is finished. Verse 31, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread to eat. From heaven. Now in Jesus, masterfully, as the master teacher, uses bread as a metaphor to filter out his fans from his followers. As the narrative unfolds, you'll see four groups of people and how they respond or react to Jesus' perplexing words. The crowds, the Jews, Jesus' disciples, and the twelve. Note who is still standing when Jesus finishes his talk on discipleship. When the smoke cleared and the dust settled, we come to the core of what it means to be a disciple or a follower of Christ. Verse 32, Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, just like that woman at the well, sir, give me this this water that I may live, that I may not come here and draw water again. They said, sir, give me this bread or give us this bread always. And although the crowd did not fully register what Jesus was saying about the bread from heaven metaphor, they were still hoping for a free lunch. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Okay. Are you ready for this bread? Are you ready? Jesus responds with some very shocking words. Words that no one was expecting. Okay, you want this bread always? You want this bread always? Are you ready? I am the bread. <laughs> I am the bread of heaven. I am the bread of life. There Jesus said it. God used Moses to bring manna from the heaven but I am the bread of life. Jesus was essentially saying, I am more than enough. Are you satisfied with that? Then believe in me. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus elaborates even more in verses 36 through 40. You have come Watch this. You have to understand that the shock value of Jesus' words here and how they landed on the original listeners in a season of Passover festival. Their minds recoil at these words. I am the bread of heaven? Here's where Jesus loses the Jews. Verse 41 through 44, the Jews grumbled about him because he said that I am the bread from heaven. Wait a minute. We know your father and your mother. How can, you be, how can you be the bread from heaven? Jesus clarifies the bread metaphor even more when he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. And this is the heart of what Jesus was saying to them. But they missed it. Verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Verse 52. Then the Jews disputed among themselves. How could this man give us his flesh to eat? He's talking about cannibalism? <laughs> See, Jesus doesn't mince his word or words or soften his message to make it more palatable, no. He drives the bread metaphor to its capacity. He did it to separate his fans from his followers. The more Jesus talked, the more it became difficult for them to stomach what Jesus had to say. And even more astounding were Jesus' words after he introduced himself as the bread of heaven. Verse 53, he says, So he said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoa. Whoever feeds on my flesh And drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh, you would think Jesus would let up a little bit. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Imagine that. Yet what Jesus was calling them to do was an act of faith. He was not talking about cannibalism. He was not speaking Literally, he was speaking in spiritual terms. Jesus was trying to feed them the pure gospel, but they didn't have a spiritual digestive tract to receive it. And in context, Jesus was referring to people receiving the truth that his own body, which is a living bread that came down from heaven, will be given as a sacrifice for the sins of the world, according to verse 51. They were to come to Christ by faith and fully drink and eat of this truth that Christ came to die for them. This is why we celebrate Holy Communion. Because we proclaim the death of Christ until he returns. Yet this saying was so difficult to grasp, eat my flesh and drink my blood, that not only it confused the multitude and baffled the Jewish people, but many of his own disciples had a very hard time processing it. Verse 60. And when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the son of man ascending to where he was before? It is a spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. See, they concluded that it's too hard for us or anybody else to understand what you're saying, Jesus. See, Jesus had a lot of fans who cheered him on when things were going well, but they jumped off the fan wagon when the season became difficult. See, that's the definition of a Jesus fan. Fans are impressed with Jesus but not impacted by him. They want Jesus to do a touch-up but not a takeover. So why does this even matter? Why does John take the time to reveal to us Jesus downsizing over 20,000 people, reducing them to 11 disciples? Why? Not exactly a popular thing to do. But Jesus was not into popular, he was into followers. And when Jesus separates his fans from his followers, we come to the core of what it means to actually follow Christ. Are you ready? Sandwiched in between the crowds who rejected Jesus and the disciples who abandoned him is the confession of Peter who speaks up for the eleven. This is the climax of the entire passage. Narrowing our gaze upon Christ alone. And embodied in this declaration to Christ are three critical components defining the essence of what it means to be Christ's followers. When he reduced 20,000 people to 11 disciples, he was making a very clear point. And that first one is this. True disciples of Christ are committed to believing and following Christ as Lord no matter what. As we saw in verses 60 through 68, listen carefully to these words. And when many of his disciples heard it, they said to him, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then, what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are Spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. True disciples of Christ are committed to believing and following Christ as Lord no matter what. You see, Jesus' own disciples abandoned him. And when they did, I had to ask myself a question what does it mean to be a disciple? If his own disciples abandoned him. Interestingly, the word Christian is only mentioned three times in the whole Bible. Two times through the mouth of pagans or unbelievers. And one time through the mouth of Peter in 1 Peter chapter 4, which is related to the theme today on persecution. He says, rejoice that you suffer as a Christian. Back in biblical times, the word was Derogatory. It wasn't really uh, something that you were proud of, okay? But if you were a believer, you associated yourself with Christ. You, you endured suffering because you wanted to be Christ-like. Today, Christian hardly means anything to the, 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 broad, the broader culture. But disciple, the word disciple disciples actually mentioned over 267 times. The term simply means learner or student. It's the Greek word "mathetos." The Pharisees had disciples. John the Baptist had disciples. But when Jesus came along, he upgraded what it meant to be his disciples. Listen to this very powerful point. Every Christian is a disciple, but not every disciple is a Christian. Every Christian is a disciple, but not every disciple is a Christian. You see, these would be disciples were really fringe followers. At best, they were fans like everyone else. The only difference is they went a little deeper, but not deep enough for Jesus to make any demands on their lives. They tagged along, they rocked the Jesus jersey, if I can use my imagination. They followed the stats. Go, Team Jesus! That's, of course, until Jesus hit an off-season again, when his sayings became too difficult for them to grasp. So things got tough, and they bailed out, just like everyone else. No commitment, no sacrifice, no getting hit in the open field, just fringe benefits. Benefits. And no doubt many of his would-be disciples dropped out not because they, they couldn't stomach Jesus' words. That was just a symptom. They dropped out because they lacked faith. Jesus revealed the real problem in verse 63. Look at these words. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. In fact, they probably didn't know what they believed. For Jesus knew from the beginning who were the ones who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him by the Father. You see, there are lots of people who have the faith of Mr. Spurgeon Fuller. A friend asked him, well, what do you believe? Well, I believe what the church believes. What does the church believe? The church believes what I believe. Well, finally, he asked, then what, both, what do both of you believe? We believe the same thing. Okay. Yeah, we may laugh about that, but it's a lot of people like that, that don't really know what they believe. And that's okay if you're at that place right now. But the Lord wants you to know the truth because the truth will make you free. Amen. Do you believe what you truly believe about Jesus? Because if you do, then that changes everything. It's a game changer. We just sung earlier. We believe our God is Jesus. We believe that he is Lord. We believe that he saved us from sin and death once and for all. Do you believe that? It changes everything if you do. For these followers, their faith, or these fringe followers, their faith became defective because they never had genuine faith to begin with. And after this, many of his disciples turn back and no longer walk with him. By default, as sinners, we are trapped in active hostility toward God. We cannot comprehend spiritual truth unless God makes us alive by his spirit and draws us to Christ for salvation in him alone. There's only one kind of follower here when it's all said and done, when the smoke clears. The one that the father draws by his spirit as we saw in verse 44 of this chapter and verse 65. Paul reminds us that no one can call Jesus Lord except by the Spirit of God, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3. These people were powerless to come to Christ on their own. True disciples of Christ are committed to believing and following Christ as Lord no matter what. But make make no mistake about this. This begins with God, drawing you by his spirit, you and I cannot do anything apart from him. Jesus doesn't back down or soften his approach to his own followers. No, he said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have come to know and believe that you are the Holy One of Israel. You're the Holy One of God. Faith in Christ is the first foundational ingredient to being a true disciple of Christ. Oswald Sanders said that faith is a deliberate confidence in the character of God in whose ways you may not understand at the time. What you're going through right now, what you're experiencing as a follower of Christ, you may not understand it right now. It may be difficult for you right now. This truth might be difficult for the disciples to receive or stomach right now. But Peter said, to whom shall we go? We may not understand you, Jesus, right now. But we're not going anywhere. And in essence, Peter was saying, we are not fans. Repeat after me. Turn to name and say, I am not a fan. <laughs> For the disciples of Christ, believing and obeying and, or believing and following Christ are not two separate things. A.W. Tozer said that the Bible recognizes no faith that does not lead to obedience, nor does it recognize any obedience that does not spring from faith. The two are opposite coins. Opposite sides of the same coin. And as Jesus concludes his talk to Nicodemus, I call him Nick at night. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Wow. You see, the interchange between obey and believe, you can't have one without the other. To acknowledge Jesus as Lord means to surrender to his lordship. Peter said to him, Lord, you have the words of eternal life. See, at the moment of salvation, we confess Christ as Lord. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. You see, these individuals tagged along probably made a confession of faith, but they did not have possession of faith because they did not believe in their hearts. No person can willingly and knowingly take Christ as Savior and reject him as Lord and be saved. Paul said to Philippian jailer, he said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. If Christ is not Lord of all, he is not Lord at all. I like the way St. Augustine said it. Jesus Christ is not value at all until he is valued above all. This is not just for people who don't know Christ. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves. I need to preach the gospel to myself. True disciples of Christ are committed to believing and following Christ as Lord no matter what. They were in it for the long haul. Eugene Peterson called it a long obedience in the same direction. A long obedience in the same direction. Not only do true disciples of Christ are committed to believing and following Christ no matter what, But secondly, true disciples of Christ are arrested and sustained by the very eternal words of Christ as Savior. Verse 68. Do you want to go away as well? Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have come to know and believe that you are the Holy One of Israel. To whom shall we go? What was Peter getting at here when he raised that question? Peter was of the persuasion that there are no other alternatives. There is no menu. Jesus is not a side dish. He is the main course, the bread of heaven. Jesus is the object and the subject of every believer's affection. He is your circumference. Jesus is the center of your world. He is your main attraction. There are no other persons, no places or things. There is no competition, no rivals, no idols. Only you, Lord. Lord. Only you. To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And as I was sitting there listening to the worship song, it's your breath in my lungs. It's your breath in my lungs. It's your breath in my lungs so I will pour out my praises to you. Whom shall we go? It's your breath in my lungs. It's powerful. Let that sink in a Sweet and Victor Viola, in their book Jesus Manifesto, said that the reality is that Christ trumps everything. All scripture testifies of him. The Father exalts him. The Spirit magnifies him. The early church knew him as her passion, her message, and the unction of her life. To whom shall we go? Simon Peter. To whom shall we go? He said, you have the words of eternal life and we have believing and come to know that you're the Holy One of God. See, I have to remind myself that Jesus is not an accessory to my life. He is my life. Colossians chapter three reminds us, for you have died and your life is hidden with God in Christ. Listen, you can go to church. You can be committed to watching all the services online. You can put a fish sticker on your bumper. You can wear a cross around your neck. You can carry a Bible in your hand. You can speak church entity very fluently, but it doesn't make you a disciple any more than it makes you a car if you're standing in a garage. You're standing there all day long, and it won't make you a car. This affectionate question that Peter raised reminds me of a song by Lisa McClendon entitled, You Are Holy. Oh, I can feel it in my spirit already. I search the heavens high. I can't sing. Don't, 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 don't go there. I can search the earth below, but there is no one, no one. I wish Nikki can sing that song. No one so holy. No one so worthy. No one so faithful. There is no one, no one. That's what the songwriter says. No one. Oh, I wish I could sing that song, but I can't. I got to stick to preaching. I, gotta, I don't even know how to sing. I can search the heavens high. I can search the earth below. There is no one. St. Augustine declared to God, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until we find our true rest in you. There is no one. To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. No one so holy. No one so worthy. No one so faithful. And as the Holy One of God, Isaiah, saw the Lord high and lifted up in the train of his robe, filled the temple in Isaiah chapter 6. There is no one so holy. I imagine Peter reminiscent of Psalm 73, verse 25, those powerful, piercing, pregnant words. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Is that true for you? That is true for true followers of Christ. C.S. Lewis made this very profound point. He says that if, if I find in myself a desire for which no experience in this world can satisfy The most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. You was made for another world. That's why you're not satisfied with having all these trivial things. They're nice things to enjoy, but we've been made for him. It's his breath in our lungs. King Solomon said that God planted eternity within us. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11, God has made everything beautiful in his time and he has put eternity in man's heart, yet he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Some time ago, while I was driving to work, listening to some worship music, I was struck with the reality that we are not merely human beings having a spiritual experience. It's the other way around. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. You see, I am fully human and fully alive when I know Christ is my Lord and Savior. Is that true for you? John later tells us that eternal life is not about you dying and going to heaven. That's reductionistic. It's much deeper than that. Eternal life, it's about knowing God the Father and the Son through the Holy Spirit right now. John chapter 17, verse 3 says, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is not a place you go to. It's a person you have a relationship with. His name is Jesus. Do you know him? See, it's easy to die and go to heaven. It's much more difficult to live the eternal quality of life in the here and now with Jesus while the dishes are piling up. And the bills need to be paid and the diapers need to be changed. Genuine followers attach themselves to the person and work of Christ and they abide in his word. In chapter 8 of this book, Jesus said to the Jews, You believe in him. Who believed in him? He says, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Verse 68. Simon Peter said, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. True disciples of Christ are arrested and sustained by the very words of Jesus Christ. Lastly, true disciples of Christ come to know Jesus as the Holy One of God. You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you're the Holy One of God. And if it was anyone who was profoundly awakened to the holiness of Christ, it was Peter, the spokesperson for the Twelve. Some people call him Big Mouth Peter, switchblade Peter. You recall that dramatic encounter that Peter had with Jesus on a day when he went fishing with his boys in Luke chapter 5 and they caught nothing. It was a lousy night. He commented Jesus climbed into his boat and told him to push a little out into the deep for a catch. Peter, the expert fisherman, said, looks at Jesus and thinks to himself, <laughs> Are you kidding me? We've been fishing all night, haven't caught nothing. And you're saying, put it out into the deep for a catch of fish? But then he says, nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And he let down the net. And what happens next profoundly changed Peter forever. Peter and his boys caught so much fish that their nets began to break, forcing him to call for backup. And with two boats full of so much fish, the boats began to sink. It was so much fish, more fish than Peter could imagine his entire lifetime in one setting. Peter broke down, melting before the feet of Christ, completely overwhelmed, not merely by the catch of fish, but by the sheer magnitude of Christ's holiness. Depart from me, Lord. I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now do you hear the force of Peter's words here? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. In a simple act of obedience, Peter's gaze is arrested by his knowledge of the Holy One, forcing him to see the depth of his own wickedness. He saw that part of him that was an active hostility against God. This fisherman in that moment surrendered his life to Christ. That was his conversion experience. Peter didn't have a category to even think about the holiness of Christ because Christ was so other, so separate, so supremely different, so pure than anything he's ever seen. You are the Holy One of Israel. Peter would later write, he, Jesus committed no sin in 1 Peter chapter 2. John said that there is no sin in him in 1 John chapter 3. Paul said that he knew no sin in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The writer to the Hebrews says that he was holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, Hebrews chapter 7. Peter had become so captivated by the supremacy and sovereignty and holiness of Christ that he later writes these powerful words in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 13. Be holy for I am holy. God says be holy for I am holy. And none of this is possible apart from faith in Christ. And after all this, that Jesus said to challenge the crowd and even his own disciples, he wasn't done downsizing. What? Who can it possibly downsize next? Verse 70, and Jesus said to them, did I not choose you, the 12? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. You see the definition of Christ's followers is in the eleven disciples. And as the worship team comes forward, let me ask you a question. Are you a fan or a follower? I used to be a fan. I became a Christian in my late teens, and in some ways I was still a fan, but I went to church service, I sat under the preach word, and yes, I believed in Jesus as my Savior. But I experienced a breaking point when I felt the Lord was calling me to go deeper. I remember, I recall going into my mother's basement at the time as a teenager, and I was praying pray, I went down there to pray for about 15 minutes, something that 15 minutes turned into three hours. And I had an epiphany moment where I had this impression where the Lord was speaking to me in that moment, and the Lord said, take the dams down. And I started to speak in tongues. I spoke in tongues at one time, and never spoke in tongues after that. It was incredible. My tongue was just going like fire. It was just like I was speaking in an unknown language. And I just wanted to keep doing it. I was traveling all around the house and speaking in tongues. My mother was probably thinking it was going with this guy. And I remember the Lord saying, and me, while I was praying in prayer, he says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and out of your belly shall flow rivers of living water. And I said, well, based on what my pastor had taught me at church, he says, if, if God is speaking to you and he's revealing something to you, that means then that you have to check the word to make sure it's in the word. So I looked in the scriptures and I saw that in John chapter 17, it said, Jesus said to the crowd, he says, believe on him. And out of your belly shall flow rivers of living water, gushing out. Only Jesus is able to satisfy us. It's his breath in our lungs. Listen, this may not be your experience. It was mine. It it catapulted me into another reality for me. I actually went up, ended up going to Bible college and seminary. This may not be your experience. God is not calling anybody to be in ministry full time. But what what is your experience? What is Christ calling you to do? Are you a fan or a follower? And if you are a follower, how deep are you going with him? You're not a fringe follower, are you? Do you really love him? Are you committed to following him? If you are, it starts with your faith. after they sing this one
1: song, we we'll closing the benediction. You give life, you give life, you are love, you bring life. To the darkness you give hope, you restore every part that is broken.
0: verse 28 through 30. Let these words sink in. Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Father, please give us your yoke more this week. As followers, Lord God, may we take your yoke upon us Help us to come to you, Lord. Help us to follow you. May your thoughts become our thoughts. May your friends become our friends. May your enemies become our enemies. May your ways become our ways. May we go where you go. May we go where you go, Lord God. May we follow where you lead us. By your spirit. In Jesus' name.